0: Hey everyone, what's going on? Maddie Moon here. I wanted to do a short little intro to say thank you to everyone who listens to this show. I checked the ratings um, on my little server yesterday to see how many listens I've had on the show so far. I've had five shows and I have 5,000 direct downloads. So that means... Roughly each one's listened to a thousand times and that is amazing. I mean, that's absolutely incredible. Sometimes I just wonder if people out there are listening and what they think of it. And I'm not getting much feedback, so I don't know what's going on. And then I looked at that and it just made my heart so full. So. I just want to say thank you to everyone that listens to the show. It means so much to me. That's why I do it. I, I don't make any money off these podcasts or blogging or anything like that. So I'm purely doing it because of the few people that do reach out to me and say, hey, this helped me or this spoke to me. Thank you for this. So I just want to say thank you to everyone that listens. And I also just wanted to say, I know I say this at the end of my shows, but if you do love this show, please just take one second to rate and review it on iTunes because I only have five ratings on iTunes right now and it's been listened to over 5,000 times. So iTunes does not know that you are digging my show unless you tell it and that means the more ratings I have, and the more reviews I have, the higher it will go in the the feed for people. So you know that little spot that's like, if you like this, you'll probably like this. Well, that's where I would go. So if you like the show and you want more people to hear it, and if you want it to stick around, just take one quick second, go over to iTunes, look for Mind Body Musings, and rate it let me know what you think and leave a comment ask me who you want to hear if there is if there's a certain topic that you really want to hear about or you want me to touch on say it and I will specifically make sure I go find someone who I can talk with that can um, that has that as their expertise and it would just mean so much to me so today we have a really great guest and I'm really ready to get started so let's go on over Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Maddie Moon with episode six of Mind Body Musings, the podcast where you can learn the most intricate details about the body, the mind, and how lifestyle choices link the two to create individual health for every shape and size. I am so excited for today because I have a very awesome guest who I had the pleasure to meet in person at Paleo FX this year. He's an integrative health coach and the host of the Rebooted Body podcast. Kevin Geary has an incredible story where he went from being an overweight diabetic with high blood pressure to a non-conventional fit, holistic health guru. Kevin uses a unique blend of ancestral science and modern psychology to help men and women reprogram their body and mind for sustainable fat loss, vibrant health, and peak performance. As you can probably tell, Kevin has a library of knowledge ready for us to dive into, so let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to the show, Kevin. How are you today?
1: I am doing awesome. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm like really excited that I got to meet you at Paleo FX. It was kind of just chance because I just happened to be in that area and then you happened to walk over and I was like, oh, what? I think he looks kind of familiar. I think I know who that is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and I we both know Kyla. So um, I'm sure we would have met at some point.
0: Yeah. I mean, the first time I actually listened to your podcast was with Kyla's the one you did with Kyla and um uh, I I can't believe I forgot who it was and uh
1: Justin was it Justin Justin,
0: the the fitness bullshit podcast
1: yeah yeah Justin Manning yeah I
0: didn't know that was Justin oh that's so funny okay yeah Yeah, I'll have to revisit that now that I know who he is um that was the that was the best I was so hooked after I heard that it was just really funny I mean (laughs) some of the things I was laughing because I still do them but like superfoods and like protein cakes and stuff like that, but it was funny. yeah,
1: yeah, we're actually planning a part two. so stay tuned.
0: Oh good. I can't wait to yeah. hear about more bullshit to be yep. awesome. Cool. Well, how did you like paleo FX since we're on the topic?
1: Uh, I liked it a lot. I, that was actually the first time I've been, and uh, because I'm not I don't really you know place myself in the in the paleo industry or whatever. Uh, but I, I liked it a lot. I especially like the fact that it seems like they're becoming less and less dogmatic as they go, which is a, a really great thing. So that was probably my number one takeaway.
0: Yeah, that's very true. I really noticed that at a lot of the talks they focused on making paleo really seem like a template and it's not like do or die. You know, it's like, yeah, we welcome everyone. You know, you can make your tweaks and it's really about making this work for your body type, which I thought was really cool.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm glad to see that they're also starting to get focused a lot on the, you know, mental and emotional side of stuff because mm-hmm. it's about more than just telling people, you know, this food is better than that food, right?
0: Exactly. What did you think about like the expo area?
1: I thought it was pretty cool. It um, you know, there was a lot of great new stuff to try. I can definitely tell that The next big thing everybody's focusing on is convenient little bars and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So there's probably a little too much of that going on, but all in all, it was a good experience.
0: Yeah, I I could not agree more. I I definitely enjoyed every single thing at the expo, so I can't really complain, but there were a lot of things and I think, I mean, it is a little overwhelming how many processed goods you can make at Paleo, but yeah. It is what it is. So it's it's awesome that people are at least trying to make an effort to make it, you know, things easy for people who actually do have allergies and stuff.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, I think, you know, putting foods into little convenient bars is like the, it's the low hanging fruit of trying to break into the industry and sell some products. I think it's eventually going to uh, expand and iterate to where, you know, they're actually coming up with really cool stuff that's actually very useful.
0: Mm hmm. Exactly. Cool. Well, you have a very interesting background. I mean, you have a story for sure. So for the people who have never heard that story, can you just go through it and tell us how you got to where you are today?
1: Yeah. Uh, So basically in 2009, I was a little over 220 pounds. And I was pre-diabetic, I had high blood pressure, I had a bunch of other, you know, little nagging ailments, and I was basically sitting in the doctor's office where they were telling me, hey, you've got blood pressure issues, and so on and so forth. And I was, um, I had just gotten married, and I was kind of thinking about my future at that point, and thinking, hey, you know, I don't really want to go down this path. My grandfather had died of type 2 diabetes complications, so, you know, I, I knew where that path ended. And of course, we're thinking about having kids and all that at that time. So it really was eye opening and I decided to make a change. Now, the problem was I got to 220 pounds through the conventional model of yo-yo dieting where, you know, I would lose 10 pounds and then gain 15 or 20 and then repeat that and repeat that and repeat that until I ended up getting to 220. So it's not like I hadn't been trying, and it's not like I was just being lazy, sitting around eating a bunch of junk food and 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 not caring. You know, I was actually in a process of trying to get things under control, but for like a lot of people, it just was not working. So at this point, sitting in the doctor's office, I was thinking to myself, all right, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go on a search to try to find some people who are saying something that is completely different from what I've heard before. And if I run into somebody and they're saying something that's even remotely similar, I'm just going to move on because I know that that kind of stuff does not work, at least for me, right? I didn't know at the time that it doesn't work for most people. Um, But I, I set out on that search and thankfully I came across, you know, the ancestral health movement, we'll call it, and started applying those principles and I was pretty amazed at how easy and quick it was to drop a lot of the excess weight that I was carrying around and start to get back in shape, and my health started improving as well. Uh, The problem was I got down to about 175, 180 pounds, and that's when the mental and emotional stuff really started coming in. Like I was having a lot of trouble. I had been using my willpower pretty strongly uh, during those initial months to, to make the progress I made, and it was starting to really fail me. Like the sugar addiction that I had was coming back really, really strong. Um, I was using food to cope with a lot of stress that was in my life. So, obviously, this is kind of like everybody's story you make a lot of progress and then you get derailed, uh, which people refer to as falling off the wagon. And I started to look at, you know, why? Why why is this happening? How can you have all of the right information? How can you have all the right knowledge and the facts and the science, yet you still can't succeed? And that really, really intrigued me. And I started doing a lot of work in that area. Uh, eventually, I was able to overcome the sugar addiction and all of these unhealthy eating triggers and got down to where I'm at now, which is about 160, 165, which is just a very easy weight for me to maintain. It's a healthy weight and uh, basically been that way for, for years now and helping as many people as I can to kind of follow the same path.
0: Mm, wow, that's really fascinating. What were the kind of diets that you had tried before? Like when you said you were yo-yo dieting, what were the diets that you had tried previously?
1: Yeah, mainly uh, it was, it's just the mantra of eat less, exercise more. So I was joining gyms and I was exercising as much as possible, uh, which I actually don't really like to do. So I'm not a big exercise person. So that was one thing where I just felt like I was constantly working against myself. And then I would be doing things like eating low fat, uh, you know, making sure portion sizes were really controlled, uh, eating a lot of the the staple food of of what I call duct tape diets, which is the boneless, skinless chicken breast mm-hmm. that everybody knows so well. Uh, I did not really like vegetables and fruits, so I, I wasn't really including a lot of those. So a lot of what I was eating was very processed. Uh, but I just thought that, hey, it's all about, you know, this calorie intake thing. So, you know, whatever. So that's obviously why, you know, my health started failing as I started getting heavier as well. So it wasn't working on on basically any front and it's funny now because going through this whole process of changing everything my t- my flavor profiles have completely changed like i never even when i grew up i never ate fruits and vegetables and i my brain seeks them out now. It's, it's very it's very interesting. I think when I train my body to realize what it gets when it has these foods, like now it just wants them all the time. So it's very it's just a very interesting process.
0: So in a way you kind of went from being someone who was all, like who always had a food rule to yeah. intuitive eating. Is would you call it intuitive eating?
1: The intuitiveness came from what I teach now is a process called conscious eating. The intuitiveness came after a lot of struggle and, and practice and and seeing all of the obsessiveness that's actually built into these dieting models. And that's one of the triggers that that really stood out to me is that it's what I say is it's always having you work against your body rather than with your body. Like we pretend as if, We're the only animal on earth that needs a calculator and, you know, to use these rules of like, oh, your protein should match the size of your fist. Like we need all of these obsessive rules to eat like and no other animal on earth does that period. Like we're the smartest animal yet uh, we, we do all of this nonsense to do to accomplish a basic thing like like eating food. And I kind of now reject all of that
0: yeah I think it's I think it's so silly when like when I personally think about my p- history of just being obsessed with food and it's just the most easiest part of our life, like eating food, putting food on a plate, being able to go to the grocery store, pick out what we want, and then eat it when there are countries that can't that don't have that luxury, and then we also like you know, we'll make food and then we'll hit like what like forty grams of something. And we made too much, so we'll throw away some for the sake of hitting that macro.
1: Yeah. Well yeah there's what's called an evolutionary mismatch which is really what's one of the biggest problems right now you know through through most of human existence we've been kind of like feast and famine where food was available in limited quantities or it was like a famine mentality where there was just it was just really hard to get food and that's kind of how we were brought up now the evolutionary mismatch is that There's just a complete abundance of food at all times. We don't even need to go gather our – gathering our food is basically the extent of going to the grocery store now where we walk in and there's just everything you could ever want in life is right there at your fingertips. It requires absolutely no work uh, other than the work to get the money to buy it. Um, but you're we've completely lost the connection to food, which is part of that intuitive or conscious eating process. I wrote a uh, five article series on conscious eating, and the very first one is talking about the disconnection between how we used to acquire food and how we acquire food today. Uh, but we're definitely set up. not, you know, everybody talks about the processed foods and the dopamine response and all of this other stuff, how we can become addicted to processed foods. But really, the, the biggest mismatch is the complete abundance of food, the complete abundance of choice, and the fact that 80% of what's available didn't even exist 100 years ago. So we've completely redefined what food actually is.
0: Yeah, I remember reading something one time in um, a magazine or some kind of journal that was talking about how many species of food we used to have, like vegetables and and uh, fruit and now we have just clones of one type so like what we have one broccoli and then all of the broccoli are clones of just that one broccoli and so we just keep eating these same things I don't know for some reason that makes me really super sad and I kind of want to just like go out into a jungle and go pick my own food and go find like 50 other types of broccoli so I'm just not limited to that one thing
1: Yeah, I had Daniel Vitalis on my podcast and we talked about this a lot, that it's just we're not getting the variety we we think we're getting or that we used to get. And really, if you look at modern agriculture, it really works against Everything that was supposed to happen like we're we're actually working against the soil and and the earth that we're using to to grow this stuff it's not really supposed to happen the way it's happening right now uh and of course, the way we're corralling animals and treating them before that that food gets to our plate i mean it's a, it's a very big mess of what's been created, and I think the answer is not the next best thing the answer is going back in time, kind of to how we used to do things. That's, that's really, the answer is simplicity.
0: Exactly, and going back to the conscious eating, what kind of tips would you give to someone who really is interested in learning how to be more in touch with their food and their emotions and learning how to intuitively eat again?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's two parts to conscious eating. The first part is what everybody recognizes as the mindful eating advice. So things like slowing down, chewing your food more, enjoying the process, being, you know, reconnecting with, with the entire process from where you get the food to how the food is prepared to how the food smells, to how what you're doing while you eat the food, and so on and so forth. Right? Everybody kind of has a an understanding of that, even if they don't practice it, they have an understanding. Then I also try to teach people how that actually uh, all impacts digestion and how other parts of life, such as stress, impact digestion. A lot of people don't realize that they live the majority of life in a sympathetic Uh, nervous system response, which is a stress response. And if you eat in that state, you actually don't digest very well. It interrupts a lot of the digestive processes, which means even if you're eating nutritious food, you're not assimilating the nutrients from what you're eating because your digestion is all screwed up thanks to this uh, stress response. So one of the first things that I have people do is just a simple breathing exercise before they eat, every time they eat, to switch from that sympathetic state to a parasympathetic state, and that ensures that the digestion process is going to be working good. So there's the physical side to conscious eating, and then there's the mental and emotional side. So what I also have people do, especially if they feel like they're dealing with a lot of unhealthy eating triggers, is I have them journal— while they're eating uh, or when they feel triggered to eat something that they you know, would rather stay away from. So that looks like um, you know, writing everything that goes through your head while you're eating. A lot of people deal with a lot of negative self-talk and it's really powerful to put these thoughts down on paper so that they tangibly exist in the real world especially with negative self-talk because I then have them go back later and write the truth out. So they write the thoughts that go through their head and then later on they go translate that and they actually write the truth about themselves to start correcting this cycle of negative self-talk. They also write what other emotions are coming up, whether it's uh, stress or shame or guilt. They, uh, if they're thinking about something that happened at work earlier that day, or they're thinking about an issue that's been happening in their family, they write that kind of stuff down. And then we just work on sorting all that stuff out and showing how all of this stuff, all of these parts of life are connected to how we relate to food. And that's a a very good process of, like you said earlier, intuitive eating. All of this amounts to learning how to eat intuitively so that we can be free from all of this struggle and food can just be what it's always really been for us is nutrition and enjoyment.
0: Oh, wow. That's incredible. I've actually tried that before. the um, Not journaling while I eat, but journaling throughout the day just to see mm-hmm. what kind of thoughts that run through my head. And yeah, it's not that pretty. And it, it's kind of an eye-opener to see like exactly what you're telling yourself throughout the day. And it's, it's no-brainer that those kind of thoughts are what's going to add up by the end of the day and just continue into the next day and then make you feel like crap, you know, and just, I don't know. I heard one thing one time someone said, like, if you had a friend that was just like you, you would never be friends because we're so mean to ourselves.
1: Huh, right. There's so
0: much bad self-talk and it's so difficult to get through and it's so difficult to get through it, especially on your own. So it's really great that, you know, you've learned this, this way of teaching people how to be more in touch with their thoughts so that they can start developing a a really good relationship with food once more.
1: Yeah, and what I really want people to connect the dots with, and this is why I'm doing a series on my podcast right now called Chasing Greatness, which is about tying in all of the really, really important aspects of life with food. A lot of people talk about how food impacts other areas of their life. So they know on on some level that if I eat a bunch of processed foods and I end up getting sick— that this is really going to have a negative impact on stuff that I care about in life in general. Well, I want to make the reverse connection to where people understand that when other areas of their life are disordered or they're not getting their needs met, that that impacts how they relate to food because food is the number one thing that we use to fill voids. So when there's a void in my relationships, when there's a void in my career, when there's a void in my finances, and I feel unfulfilled in those areas, it's very easy to get the sense of fulfillment by actually filling myself up with food. And a lot of people never make that connection. So the journaling while you're eating helps you make that connection because you start to see the patterns every time you sit down.
0: So do you kind of think that, disordered eating and people that have these relationships with food that are slightly poor, it's not really about the food, but there's a, a root problem going on in their life that they really need to recognize and focus on that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Or they've just fallen into like a pattern that's kind of paralyzed their, their decision making. Uh, so yeah, we can have most of the time, you know, disordered eating habits come from unmet needs in other areas or stress in general, and we have to identify those and deal with those, and that's how we free ourselves from using food as the tool. Now, there's also pattern paralysis, and I'll, I'll give you an example. A lot of people deal with this, and, and I would say most people have disordered eating habits simply because of how they were taught to relate to food as, as kids. So I I use the story a lot of, you know, when a child is crying, a lot of times the parents are, are very uncomfortable when kids are crying and they want the crying to stop. So the first line of defense is always telling the child that they're okay. So you'll hear parents say, "You're okay, you're okay, you're okay." Well, the child's not really. They don't think they're okay. That's why they're crying. All right, so that's what crying is for. So it doesn't help to tell somebody who's crying that they're okay. Um, I so, saw that
0: video by the way that you posted today. The oh video yeah, 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 yeah. The, the crying kid. It was screaming about the the not being a son. It was a daughter being born. Yes. So yeah, Yeah. keep going. I just want to know how you would like how you're supposed to respond to that kind of situation.
1: Well, yeah. So you're you're supposed to respond to how would you respond to an adult who's crying? Let's say you know Kyla is is crying and she's very upset, right? And you're you're going up to Kyla and you would say. Kyla, you're you're okay. And you would just pat her on the back. Right. And you would completely ignore everything that that is really going on with her. So is that is that how you would approach Kyla?
0: No, definitely
1: not. Okay, right. So you would want to really figure out the, the crux of the issue. And, you know, be basically a, a friend where she can talk with you if she wants to, or just get comfort if she wants that. Well, people don't really relate to kids that way. People relate to kids as I have a crying kid. The crying is making me uncomfortable, uh, and I just want to fix this as quickly as possible. So let me just tell them they're okay because a lot of times you can get kids to stop crying by telling them they're okay and picking them up and and yada yada yada. But what you're really doing is you're having them stuff whatever feelings they had. Uh, And they start to think that, you know, a lot of kids think that crying is, you know, something babies do, right? You hear um, eight or nine or 10-year-olds do that all the time, or they get hurt and they try not to cry, because that's kind of what they've been taught to do. So another uh, one of the tools that parents use a lot is food. So if the you're okay, you're okay doesn't work, you know, it's like, here, do you want uh, a cookie or some ice cream or whatever? Because now we need to, to medicate this somehow because I, I haven't got it, you know, with just the me, me talking, right? That hasn't been a solution. So they move on to the food. Or we use, let's completely erase that and just go to, in general, when kids do something great, what do we do? We take them out for ice cream, right? So we're, we're teaching them to relate to food as a reward or food as comfort. If you have a crying child that you've given food, well, when that person is an adult and they're crying, what do we think that they're going to turn to when they're upset or when they're stressed, right? Or we have, uh, there's a trigger called regressive rewarding, which is when somebody starts to adopt a new lifestyle with eating and exercise and they make a bunch of progress and then they completely get sidetracked because they start saying, oh, I've been doing so great. Let me have a little ice cream here and a little cake there because, you know, look at all this progress I've made. Like maybe that goes back to the fact that when we were kids, every time we did something great, we had to go get ice cream or we had to be rewarded somehow with food, right? So these are patterns that people are programmed by. So it's very difficult to escape those, and most people are are stuck in them because it it pretty much happens to every kid. It's very very rare to go to a park. You know, I have a two-year-old daughter, and I take her to the park all the time, and I very rarely see parents interacting with children in a way that is optimal, that's healthy, right? It's almost all about devalidation, almost always about rules, Um, which I I don't know. We're at a park. I don't know why a park suddenly has a bunch of rules. Like the kid's allowed to play. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to play. But parents have, no, you can't walk up the slide. Slides are for going down, right? Who says? Like it's a playground. Let Let me walk up the slide if I want to walk up the slide. So, you know, rules devalidation when the kid gets hurt or distraction. Um, You know, a lot of times a kid gets hurt and we pick them up and then we're showing them like, uh, you know, their teddy bear, their puppet. Hey, look at this. Look at like distracting them away from their emotions. And then we have a bunch of adults who use food to cope with their emotions or who can't talk to people because they would rather just stuff their emotions. We're creating all these problems and, uh, you know, nobody's escaping from it really.
0: Mm -hmm. Can you give us a scenario then of like, the ideal way to respond then to to the rules that are at the playground and to like instead of rewarding a child with food or if they do something good like we were talking earlier um, saying good job to a child and they do something good instead of saying good job when they you know um, get good grades or whatever yeah what would you say to them what because you don't want to ignore it and you do want to congratulate them right I would think
1: What you want to do is there's intrinsic motivation and there's extrinsic motivation. So extrinsic motivation is like me telling you good job or giving you some sort of reward or something like that. So if you gave a child a sticker or a star for doing something good, that's an extrinsic motivator. Well, a lot of people have kind of seen that, all right? So we have this trophy generation where the kid gets a trophy for everything that they do. And we're starting to see how that might not be a good thing. Well, we still haven't really figured out that when we say good job uh, you know, 100 times a day to kids, I guarantee if you go to a park and just sit on a bench, You won't be there for five minutes before you hear a parent say good job for something. It could be like climbing up the ladder to to go down the slide. Good job. And they're, you know, they're clapping and they, they feel as if that's what they're supposed to be doing, Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's not supporting a child's intrinsic motivation, and that's really what you want to cultivate. So, good job is basically an empty statement; it doesn't mean anything. The child's not actually doing a job, um, and they don't need that from the parent. So, what they just need is recognition. So, uh, it basically, if you have a child who you feel has done something great, instead of saying good job. Just talk about what they did that was great. So um, if, if uh, let's say they've climbed this big ladder that they haven't climbed before and you feel proud of them for that, well, you don't want to judge their action and, and kind of show them that they should be proud. If, if they did something they're proud about, they already feel proud. So you can just say, yeah, you climbed that ladder. I saw you. I saw you do it. I was watching. Right, so just to let them know that you're there and you're connected with them, so you're not saying good job, you're not judging what they did, and you're allowing them to feel proud. Right, you're not suddenly um, bar- barging in with your own judgments about what they just did, which is ev- what everybody does when they're saying good job and so on and so forth.
0: And like, if you start doing this kind of young with your with your kids, they're not going to expect a good job either, right?
1: Right. Exactly. And, and they shouldn't. Right. They should learn to what what you end up with. A lot of times is kids who ask this question. And I used to be a teacher. OK, so I would hear this all of the time from my students because I never told my students, good job. All right. Um, and this is very difficult in a classroom of of twenty five kids when you're trying to really motivate kids. I mean, and I was brought up with all of this language. So it's something I had to reprogram myself. Um, But if you if you have a child that hears good jobs all the time and they're extrinsically motivated, they actually lose the ability to judge themselves and their and what Mm. they've done. Okay, so they end up coming up to you and they say, did I do a good job Mm. now? a child should never, ever, ever ask that question. There's absolutely no reason for them to ever ask that question. That is a sign that the child has lost the ability to identify with themselves whether they feel proud of something or not, or whether what they did has any value attached to it, right? They're not sure anymore. So they come up to the parent or the teacher, did I do a good job? Was that good? Was that good enough, right? They're looking for that for that from the parent, that judgment, because they've lost the ability to do it. And that's really uh, very tragic, actually.
0: Hmm. So would you, would you like say that coming from um, a point of view of someone that has had disordered eating, do you think that disordered eating generally starts at childhood? And these kind of this good job, these, um, rewards and punishment and recognition, that's kind of where it all stems from. Like maybe not for everybody, but for some people.
1: I mean, a lot of people disordered eating probably always stems in childhood, just not necessarily from the examples that I Mm -hmm. gave. So the examples that I gave absolutely contribute. Now the the thing is, is that obviously we have to learn how to deal with our emotions at some point in life. We have to f- learn how to relate to other people and, and have healthy interactions and healthy boundaries. We have to learn how to manage stress at some point. Well, all of that stuff does happen in childhood. So whether we're being taught or whether it's just being observed. So generally, most kids learn best by observing what the people closest to them do. And we tend to pick up any flaws that our parents have, right? So as we move into adulthood, then absolutely, when we have trouble managing stress, when we have trouble managing relationships, when we have trouble doing all of this, you know, really deep, meaningful stuff, and then that manifests as problems with eating, then, yeah, you can say that, you know, these problems go back to childhood. So I'm not saying that people with disordered eating habits had bad childhoods or had bad parents. Like, that's never what I'm saying. I'm just saying that these issues came from somewhere. They don't just spontaneously happen, right? So you have to be very objective when you look back and say, all right, well, you know, where were the lapses? How can I close the gaps? And so on.
0: Okay. So... This is going to get personal, then, because I want to kind of talk about my own history. And there are two things in my life that I kind of think started with my obsession with, like, dieting. And I can get your take on this. I've talked about this in my podcast a couple times before. I think I talked about this on Justin Manning, so you might have heard it. But um, I, when I was, like, in sixth grade or middle school, or I think it was pretty young, I watched a TV show where this girl, like, didn't eat for a couple days and she like passed out and she was talking about how like it was her way to lose weight. And then at the end of the show, everyone was like, don't ever do that. We love you. We care about you. And she was like, okay, I never will. But in my head, it kind of like stuck. And I was kind of like, Oh, I didn't know people didn't eat for days. I should try that. Like I totally missed the point of the whole show. And this right. was, I was very young. And another thing that's happened in my life is I used to always suck in as a kid, I used to always suck in. Cause you know, I was, influenced and someone had once said, you know, suck in so that when you're older, you can suck in and, you know, it won't, you know, it won't be as difficult. Or like every time you hit a red light in a yeah. car, suck in. And so when I was little, I was so young in developing these habits. And then I kind of just took off from there. Once I got a little bit older, I just started dieting. I mean, I told you about this offline a little bit about the vegetarian, vegan, bodybuilding, you know, but it's so much more than that. It's more just like, even if I'm not on a certain diet or if I'm not thinking about my body, it's kind of like I am definitely thinking about my body at the back of my head. So yeah. I, I kind of think it's like stemmed from those two things in my life, but I really have no clue.
1: So what, what did you, when you st- were talking about the sucking in part, um, what age was that?
0: Oh my gosh, um, probably like second grade.
1: And where, where did that idea come from?
0: Um, just, um, someone I knew, I guess.
1: Like a classmate or another adult? Yeah, adult. An adult? Yeah. Okay. And then how did your, uh, parent, did you spend a lot of time with this adult? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Was it a
0: parent? (laughs) I don't know, maybe.
1: (laughs) All right. Um, so yeah, I mean, exactly, right? That this Mm -hmm. is, uh, this is where we, we start to observe what's happening around us. The question is, is it in any realm of health for a person in second grade to be concerned about how they look to that degree and sucking their stomach in and, and so on?
0: Mm-mm, not at
1: all.: Right. So what we've done is we've picked that up from people who, you know were in their care, right? And they I'm not saying th- these people are, are doing things wrong. they're just unaware right? Um, they're they're doing the best they can. Um, they're probably repeating a cycle that was done to them as well. So we have to be very, very careful as parents when we are talking about our own bodies. Uh, I know that there's a lot of moms out there who their kids are in the room when they're looking at themselves in the mirror and saying, wow, I don't look good or I'm way too big or well, Children are observing that behavior and that is the type of behavior that they are going to adopt. It's immediately going to turn them on their own bodies saying, oh, wow, well, my mom, you know, has these imperfections. I wonder which ones I have and which ones I should be worried about because she's really worried about hers. I should be really worried about mine. And now we start to look at ways that we can start fixing this or hiding it. Right. And it just starts to snowball and becomes this big thing that gets out of control. Mm -hmm.
0: And I will say just just to to get it out there, that my parents were probably the best examples that I ever could have had for loving her body. Like my grandma, my mom, and all my relatives. I mean, I know what you're saying is like they unintentionally do this. It might be something that they said and they didn't realize. But as I get older, my my mother like never talks about her body in a negative way whatsoever. And that at my age right now is such a good example for me. Because I just see how happy she is and her skin and my grandma and like they're all just the most vivacious, beautiful women and just so comfortable. And then there's like me that's kind of like not so comfortable all the time. But I don't know. I've I good examples at my age right now for, for them as parents, but um
1: Right. Like- the the issue really is that your, this kind of stuff really gets burned into your mind between birth and age five. Mm. So when parents are thinking about really being good role models, it doesn't help much. We feel like it helps, but it doesn't help much to be a great role model when a child is 15 or 18 or 12. Like by the time that they've gotten there, it's, it's been burned in for so long that it's gonna take a lot more work than just having that role model switch take place
0: that's that's just so fascinating like the children's psychology compared to like adult psychology I don't know it's crazy I never really think about it but I yeah know.
1: I mean if you think about it really like it's it's a race for a, a baby to assimilate as much information about the world as mm. possible so that they can start to grow and survive and adapt to it um, so there's much more going on in the brain in the very, very early years than in the later years. So, you know, I have a, uh, um, a neighbor who is talking about basically her parenting. And she, uh, one, one, of the, one of the things I hate is when people say, I'm doing the best I can, when they're not mm-hmm. actually doing the best that they can. So mm-hmm. doing the best that you can looks like researching um, trying to explore different ways of how to relate to kids, not just repeating the cycle that was done to you. That's not doing the best you can. Doing the best you can is trying to identify the flaws in the cycle you were subjected to and not subject your own kids to that. That's doing the best that you can. So she was saying, um, you know, she's getting to that point where she is starting to look into alternatives to her very, very authori- authoritarian style parenting, uh, because she's now seeing that it's it's not working, at least for her kids, and she wants to explore different avenues. But one of the comments that she said, where I was kind of like, you know, not really, but in my mind, I was face palming myself, where she was like, at least at least it doesn't matter right now that they're not going to remember any of this Mm. until they're eight or nine or 10 or whatever. And that's when I'll have a really good handle on all this stuff. And it's like, actually, like you need to have the handle on it between zero and five. That's really when you need to have the handle on stuff.
0: Mm, That is, that's fascinating. Like, and so many people that are parents, they're not even ready to be parents nowadays. Like just, I mean, I'm just talking from experience, knowing a lot of people that have kids when they're so young, and right, and then they're just not ready for the for the zero to five teachings, and yeah. you know, then by the time that you know they're a little bit older, and then their kids are a little bit older, that's when they finally think they can like become a parent, you know, and that's totally not the case, right? So, say these children grow up, and they have developed these uh, morphed point of views with food. And um, disordered eating. What kind of what kind of tips would you really give someone that's trying to stop dieting and that's been dieting forever? Like, what's the very first thing you would tell this person? I mean, having to undo all the things they learned as a child that are ingrained in their brain. What would they do now? Because they're just like, oh my god, I'm so sick of dieting. And every single night, it's the the last meat, the last dinner. I, I read um, I read intuitive eating. And at one point in the book, it had said, I mean, you were kind of pointing on this, hitting on this, too, that every night you think it's your last meal. So, you know, you're you're kind of overeating every night because you're like, okay, tomorrow I'm starting a new diet. And then in your brain, you're just freaking out and you're thinking, like, I got to hurry up and eat all this stuff because I'll never have it again. And I can totally relate. I've done that before. I've never been a binger or anything like that. But I have eaten more at night because I think the next day a diet's coming. And Mm -hmm. I've heard stories of just girls saying, oh, my God, I did that too. I did that too. It's like every single night before, I have to eat more because the next day I'm going on a diet. And there's something very comforting about diets. And, I mean, I guess it could be control. It could be managing stress. It could be a lot of different things, just habit. But... Leaving that dieting mindset and that comfort zone is so hard for so many people, um, and I'm men too, women and men. So, what would be the very first thing that you would say that someone for someone that's trying to get out of that cycle that they've had for years and years?
1: Yeah. Well, first, before we do that, let's go back and talk about what you just said of why people feel very comfortable doing diets and. You hit on it when you said it's about control because diets are set up the way society is set up and the way that we bring up kids these days. So we're basically putting them into a system of rules that they follow and boxes that they check. And we start doing this with kids from a very young age. Then we put them in this system called kindergarten and elementary school. And what they do in kindergarten and elementary school is they learn to be obedient to the instructions that they're given to check all of the right boxes and to pursue the A plus grade, right? Um, So that all of the the next good things can happen to them. They can get into high school and then they can graduate high school and they can get into a good college and then they can go from college to having a good well-paying career with benefits and then they can stick to that cycle for a long time and then they can retire. And all of this is prefaced with check all the right boxes and get the good marks on your paper and follow these rules, all right? That's all of society right there in a nutshell. So then we have people who enter the real world and we're dealing with very complex topics like relationship with food, like dealing with emotions and stress and patterns that that we've been brought up with. And there are really no rules to that stuff. But these diets make it feel as if there are. Like, oh, I, you know, I don't want to do all of that work. I'm not actually sure where that work will lead me. But I know that this diet says if I follow this rule and that rule and that rule and this meal plan and count these calories, that it'll take me to where I want to go. So they go inside this dieting model because it's very, very comfortable to them. It's exactly like being back in elementary school or high school where I just check the boxes and I follow the rules and I'm supposed to get the A when I'm done. But the problem is, is that doesn't lead to that outcome. It doesn't lead to winning. It doesn't lead to what they want. It doesn't lead to freedom. So abandoning that is all about the process of just becoming aware that all of this stuff is, is happening around you, right? That you're not broken, that it's really the processes that you're using are broken. The way you're thinking about this stuff is broken, but it's very, very fixable.
0: Well, what would you say if someone has been doing that for aesthetic reasons, and that they're trying to obtain a certain type of body, and their focus is on, you know, looking a certain way rather than trying to just do be comfortable with control? What if they're trying to go for a certain kind of physique?
1: It depends. Um, there are. So, are are you saying that they want to? Do competitions or like this is a sport thing or we're talking about Olympic athletes? Who are we talking about?
0: I wouldn't say Olympic athletes because that – I mean that's more of strength. But I'm thinking of like the people who – the girls who want to be fitness models or want to look like the fitness competitors, whether they're doing a competition or not. They just kind of – they look at the magazine covers on Oxygen magazine and want to look like that. And then they keep trying all these diets so that they can look a certain way.
1: Yeah. So it's really – boils down to finding out, you know, why is that going to help me as a human being? And Mm -hmm. why am I pursuing that? Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of times it's for things like recognition. It's to get that extrinsic motivation because maybe you feel like you've gotten so much attention as, as a child for everything you've done. It's just attention, attention, attention. You get into this real world where it seems like you know, not a lot of people really care about you uh, or what you happen to be doing. They're all worried about themselves. And it's like, whoa, 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 where, what happened to the me, me, me? And it's like, okay, how can I get these people's attention now? Oh, I can get, you know, a, well, this person got on a magazine because they have a body that looks like this. And everybody picks up this magazine and says, wow, I wish I could look like that person. Well, if I was that person, they would say the same things about me right? So now we're getting into the, you know, relational issues where we're trying to figure out why is, has this become how I look at myself and why have my relationships been manipulated in this way to where I feel like people won't appreciate me or they won't love me or they won't recognize that I exist unless I do all of these physical things to myself.
0: I completely agree. And I have that exact same experience with it. I mean, When I started, when I went on my first fitness competition, I was losing weight left and right, and uh, you you could see my my uh, sorry my legs were getting thinner, and I was just getting like a lean, green little bean. And people were saying, "You look so good! Like you look amazing! What are you doing?" And I was getting all this attention, and I was on all over Instagram and you know, the highlight of my morning would be posting a picture of my morning abs or whatever mm-hmm. they're called. And then people would, Then you know, I'd check back every five minutes to see who's liked it, who's commented it, how many new followers did I get. And that was the kind of stuff that like, you know, I was on a little high when I got lots of likes. And when people asked me, how in the world do you do that? And we're mentioning Kyla a lot. But in my first episode, I had Kyla on there and she was saying, there's something about being feeling self righteous we just have this self righteousness when people are like what are you doing i cannot do that and that is so worthless like it's yeah. so worthless when you really when you put in so much effort to look a certain way and you get these compliments and then there's nothing real that comes out of it. Actually, there's a lot of negatives that come with it because then you feel kind of attached. You feel definitely attached to this body. You feel like if you gain weight or if you start looking a certain way or if you start going to the gym a little bit less, you'll get less recognition. and People forget Mm -hmm. about you. And the one thing you did right in their eyes now does not matter because you're no longer doing that and people will see you as a failure because you no longer want to go to the gym seven days a week. You no longer want to eat out of Tupperware every single day. You're starting to disappear on Instagram and everyone's like forgetting about you. So you're like, oh my God, I better start getting in shape again so that I can get all of these people who I don't even know to start looking at me again. And then where does that lead you? It leads you to to no good no good food. It leads you right. to stress. It leads you your cortisol levels to rise and Most importantly, in my eyes, it leads you to a very bad. I mean, you have, I mean, the psychological things is one thing, but also your relationship with people suffer Mm -hmm. so much, suffer incredibly. And I started just thinking so much about what people thought about me. I wouldn't go out for drinks with friends anymore. Of course, I didn't have many relationships. I didn't have a boyfriend or anything like that. And, you know, the prime years of your life, if you start going through this cycle at a young age when you're in your, your teens, hopefully not, but your 20s and your 30s, then you're missing out on some of the golden years of your life because you're spending it with yourself. You're spending it with your calorie counting app. You're spending it with your Tupperware and you're spending it sad and right. it's just, it's just really awful to look back uneven moments I have had of the Instagram and chicken and obsessing and calorie counting and thinking like, thinking me and that, you know, that stage of my life and what I could have actually been doing with all of that time. And, you know, the relationships that I could have built in that time and the work I could have created in that time. And the thing that I personally think about whenever I'm trying to st- you know, say Madeline Coolit, you know, you look you look great, you're beautiful, no one is even thinking about you. When I'm trying to remind myself of that, the first thing I think of to get myself out of that cycle is say, do I wanna be eighty-five years old, sitting with my, you know, super futuristic phone doing some kind of new calorie counting thing that they'll have when I'm eighty and obsessing about what I look like because that's like the scariest thought ever is thinking about being older and having these same issues and still being on, you know, being on your hundredth diet alone with your cats. Right,
1: <laughs> Right. And like you talked about, and for people who might still be in this paradigm, you talked about how once you get that recognition, then you can't stop because you might lose all of that mm-hmm. audience you've built, right? Where there's, well, there's the other side of it. As well, I'm sure you've probably felt this before where it's like if I just maintain what I've accomplished, that won't be enough. I'll lose them because they'll get bored of this. Mm -hmm. I always have to up the ante, right? I always have to do the next best thing. You know, if if I have a four-pack, I need a six-pack. If I get a six-pack, it needs to be an eight-pack. I need to, you know, grow this muscle or that muscle. Like it's it's never-ending. It's a maddening cycle that you absolutely cannot win.
0: Right. And your fuel for that a lot of times is comparison. You start seeing other people that are getting more attention than you and you're like, okay, well, what do they have that I don't? They have they have that six pack. Okay, well, I need to look like that person. And then you, I'm, I'm really talking just about Instagram because I'm really against that even though I use it all the time just because of the way it affects people. But then you scroll down a little further on Instagram, whatever. And you see someone that has like the best glutes you've ever seen. And they have 254 people like liking that photo. And then you're like, okay, well God, now I gotta get these glutes. And you're constantly just comparing yourself from one body to the next when that is just a a battle you will never win. You will never win that battle because you will never have their genes. You will never be that person. And you will never know what's going on in their life. They could actually be the most miserable, spiteful person ever who is comparing their body to everyone else's body. Yeah. You know? yeah. I
1: mean, the, one of the biggest things to be aware of is the amount of superficiality that's in the world where we're always looking at somebody and relating to what do they look like? Who are they friends with? What do they own? How much money do they have? Mm. And it, the question is really never about anything that really amounts to self-worth, Right. Um, it never amounts to how does this person treat other people? Uh, what has this person done for other people? You know, what does this person's relationships with their children look like? You know, we have these people in Hollywood who everybody flocks around them, yet they're womanizers or they're child abusers in real life, right? They, that's who they really are. Um, but yet we still put them up on a pedestal. We, we've lost completely uh, sight. Of what really makes somebody a, a great person, and and what self worth is really made of.
0: Exactly. Yeah. When you when you die, no one's gonna think about like what you look like. They're not going to care. They're gonna think about what you did for other people. Like, oh, I remember the time that you know Kevin got me out of my eating disorder habits. You know, like that's what they're gonna remember. They're gonna remember all the good deeds you do, and not what you look like. No one cares because everyone's thinking about what they look like. That's the truth. Like everyone's so concerned with what they look like. No one cares what you look like. So if someone is really trying to look a certain way for themselves, at least they might think they do, they just want to look a certain way because it'll make them feel better. How do they transfer that energy and that attention to something else? Do they need to go find something else to focus on or is the goal to just focus on nothing and just to give yourself a break? If that makes any sense.
1: I think the goal is I mean it's okay to to look at yourself and want to change, you know, x or y or z a little bit. It depends on a lot of times I talk about how people have broken thermostats. So, you know, you would never if somebody had a broken thermostat, you wouldn't ask them what temperature it is because the the response they're going to give you is not relevant to anything. And a lot of people look at life with a broken thermostat and they look they look at their body with a broken thermostat so I'll give you two examples the first one with life a lot of people are probably listening to this saying well you know I, I I'm a great parent I don't have anything to change and it's like well you have a broken thermostat right? You grew up a certain way. You've been in a certain cycle. You have a certain view of what normal is. That may not be my view of normal. That may not be somebody else's view of normal. So you just kind of have to assess, am I really, you know, doing the best for my kids? I can't just assume I am because somewhere in my mind, I feel like I had a great childhood, right? You can't just be completely accepting of everything that happened to you. You still have to do the work to to look at what really happened. See if there's any lapses, like I said earlier, and start to fix those. That's doing the best that you can. The same thing is true for your body. A lot of people look at their body and say, man, I got to fix this and I got to fix that and look at this. That's ugly and so on and so forth. And really everybody else that looks at them is saying like, you're a very beautiful person, right? But they can't see that because their thermostat is broken That their mind is is programmed to to think about all of these things they need to fix. So you have to be very careful of, you know, which mindset are you in? Do you have a broken thermostat or is your thermostat accurate? When you look in the mirror, are you seeing the truth or are you seeing some overlay that's based on your programming? Um, So I tend to think that people should just focus most on health and the process of creating an environment of health. And the body is very great at responding to that. I mean, it turns out like when you give the body what it needs and you create an environment of health, then it adapts to that environment, just like it adapts to an unhealthy environment. If you create that unhealthy environment, you get a bigger body, you get a broken body. If you create a healthy environment, you get a healthy looking body and you get um, the actual longevity that is going to do something tangible for you as well. So I think it's just focusing on the process and creating that healthy environment, which isn't just about food and exercise, by the way. It's about all of this stuff that, that we've been talking about.
0: Mm-hmm. That's really good advice. And you just said exercise. I just – we're running out of time, but I really quickly wanted to touch on your minimalistic training and movement and just talk about functional movement and why it's so beneficial because I know that's, that's what you're all about, right? You're not huge on the gym scene.
1: Yeah, I, I don't like uh, I don't like exercise. Um, so it's more about, you know, what can I have fun with that's active and moves my body? Because there, there is a general rule as a human being, you need to move your body. So that doesn't mean we have to exercise. It just means we have to move. So uh, I was having this conversation with one of my clients actually who said, "You know, I had to take the week off from exercise because we're doing a big project in our backyard and uh, it's it's very time consuming and and taxing and so on and so forth. And I was like, well, that's actually a great thing, right? I, I have exercise routines because people just don't move enough. But if you're gonna be outside, All week doing a bunch of, you know, pretty taxing stuff with your body in the sun, then you don't even need to be thinking about exercise. Like that's it. You're accomplishing the goal right there. Um, People. Think about exercise as being this thing they have to slave away at in a gym, like you said. Well, exercise to me is getting friends together and going out and playing a game of flag football. It's putting in headphones and just going on a really long walk. Or maybe I don't even bring the headphones. Uh, It is... If, if I really need to move my body, but I'm very busy that day, I go outside, I pick up the ultimate sandbag, I do 20 minutes with the sandbag, I go back inside, and I don't worry about it anymore. So we can do exercise or we can do general activity. It doesn't matter as long as you're moving your body. What I want people to understand, and I'm sure they've heard this before, is 70 to 80% of your results are going to come from what you're putting in your mouth. And that idea of creating a healthy environment in general, right? And then the last 10 to 20% is probably going to come from exercise type things. Um, so as long as they're moving their body and doing that exercise, they're going to be, you know, pretty much exactly where they want to be.
0: Yeah, that's that's really a good point because whenever I think of working out, and this is this is so wrong. It's so funny that I think this way, but when I think of working out, like I could go rock climb for 3 hours and i probably wouldn't call that working out. I wouldn't. I could go for a a really long walk and i wouldn't consider that working out. But if i go to the gym and i'm actually in the gym, that's called a workout. No matter what i'm doing, if it's inside of a gym, that's called a workout. And that is so wrong. And i'm so like aware that i think that way and i've been working the past couple of months like no, that's not it. That's actually what puts me as a slave. That's what gets me into that slave, you know, five times a week workout routine where I never get to play and I never get to have fun because going for a walk is, is I mean, I guess not, I mean, working out might not be the right phrase, but it is Yeah, I think we need to,
1: yeah, we need to ditch, I guess, exercise and working out and just use the word activity. Like the human body just needs to do activity that's physical, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, absolutely. Like you said, and what that leads to, because if you only think that workouts happen in a gym. Well, there's going to be some days where you really don't feel like going to the gym or you don't really feel like going to X, Y, Z class, right? These organized places where, Mm -hmm. where people work out in groups. So there's this mindset of you have to create habits. You have to create habits. You have to create habits. So the way you create a habit is you force yourself, even when you don't want to do it, you force yourself to do it. And to me, that's Going back to working against our body rather than with our Mm -hmm. body. I mean, your body's telling you something. Dude, I don't want to work out today, right? So what else can we do to just be an active human being? So it's okay that I'm not going to do this group exercise or go to the gym and do this quote-unquote workout. But what can I do to be active today? I don't need to force myself into these habits. Like I said, the only habit that matters is building a habit of creating a healthy environment. That's it. So I know that it's not healthy to sit in front of the television for 12 hours because I don't feel like exercising. But I do need to do something. So let's go for a long walk. Let's play a game. Let's get the kids. Let's go outside. Let's do something that is just general activity as a human being. And I have accomplished my goals for today.
0: And I really think that that right there is one of the first things people need to work on. If they are still in the mindset of routine and habit, just changing the way you see activity and exercise can probably like help you with the way you see food because you stop you stop regulating your exercise as strictly, and you start listening to your body in that way, and then that's going to transfer over to the dieting department eventually. I mean, it'll help you learn how to not be so rigid and so routine and to listen to yourself a little bit more. If you're intuitive with your body, it's going to transfer over. Is that, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, ab-
1: absolutely. And and see, healthy a, a healthy environment, the concept of just building a healthy environment is a snowball where if... You do um, X today that contributes to that healthy environment. You do Y tomorrow. You do Z the next day, right? We don't have to do Y every day. We just have to do something every day to create this healthy environment uh, as a basic human being that snowballs and starts to really motivate you to do these other things. So it might one day I might wake up and go, you know what? I really want to go to the gym today and, and do a traditional workout that might happen. And that's perfectly fine. Right. But I'm not forcing myself into that model. Now, the other thing that snowballs is guilt. So if you create this, I've got to make this new habit. I've got to go to the gym. uh, Even if I don't feel like it, I got to go because this guy online said to make this habit. So I'm going to force myself to do it. And then one day you don't then the guilt starts to come in or you slip up on your eating and the guilt starts to come in. And guilt is, a, is the opposite snowball. It's the snowball of negativity and it's the snowball of not succeeding. And you want to avoid that as much as possible. So you have to create paradigms where guilt is not going to come into the equation.
0: Mm, yeah, guilt is probably my least favorite quality ever, because I've experienced a lot of guilt, like most people have, and it's very obvious, and it's very distracting from what you really want to do. So learning how to avoid guilt as much as possible, I think, is really key as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm sad, but we've reached our hour. We're a little bit over it. So This was seriously one of the best conversations I've ever had. I think you're a genius and I'm really excited that everyone gets to hear this. So before we go, can you just let us know um, what's in store for your future and where is the rebooted body heading?
1: Yeah, the Rebooted Body is just heading towards helping as many more people as we can. So every time we get to spread this message a little bit further and wider and bring in more people to the community, uh, I'm happy with that. So that's all we're focused on doing right now is getting that message into the hands of more people.
0: I love it. And will I be seeing you at the Paleo FX in Denver?
1: It's very possible. You may even see me on a panel. We'll see.
0: (gasps) No way. I might be on one too.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I don't know I'm, for I'm,
0: sure. We'll see.
1: Yep, me too. I've I'm, got I'm, nerves. It's <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about it right now.
0: Oh, I'm so excited. That's going to be awesome. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really stoked for everyone to hear this, and especially everyone with kids, because I think we covered a lot of good ground today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And if anybody has any questions, I mean, feel free to send me emails. I I respond to pretty much everybody that emails me. So uh, if they want to get more into that discussion about kids, I'm actually writing uh, a book called Reboot Your Kids. It's not going to be out for a while, but uh, it's in the works. So I, I think that's a really important topic because if we fix that part of all of this, then we're going to fix a lot of adults before the problem ever happens.
0: Mm-hmm. That's an awesome point. All right. Well, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Bye, Kevin. Bye bye.
0: Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'm Maddie Moon, and you've been listening to the Mind Body Musings podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to rate and review it in the iTunes store as well as subscribe. Also, Please remember, I'm glad to continue the conversation on my website, moonfitness.net, where you can also sign up for my free e-course, Mind Body Satisfaction Sacrifice Free. I created this e-course to help everyone that struggles with body image, dieting, overtraining, and negative self-esteem to learn how to not only accept who you are, but love who you are. This is coming from an ex-fitness model and bikini competitor, so trust me, I know what it's like to have those struggles and to want to be free of them. So please, if any of that sounds good, head on over to moonfitness.net and sign up.